0: This evening, for our consideration, we'll be looking at a passage of Scripture from 1 Peter 1, verse 13 through 21. If you're using your Pew Bible, this is found on page 1390. After we read from that portion of Scripture, we'll also read from Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And in the Forms and Prayers book, you'll find that on page 214. Many times we're asked why we use the Heidelberg Catechism, and we do so because we receive it, we believe it to be a faithful summary of the Word of God. We believe that it encapsulates the basic truths, the doctrines of Scripture. And you'll notice this evening as we read first from the inspired, infallible Word of God uh, that there's mention of being redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that it's not a strict quotation in Lord's Day 13, Uh, but if you carefully uh, listen to the words of Lord's Day 13, you'll notice that they do indeed summarize uh, very closely uh, the biblical teachings such as found in 1 Peter 1. We begin reading at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, So that your faith and hope are in god thus far this evening our reading from the scriptures we then turn to lord's day 13 which has two questions continuing uh, to expound the person of jesus christ there is the question in 33 why is he called god's only begotten son when we also are god's children and the answer because christ alone is the eternal natural son of god We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace for the sake of Christ. Question 34 continues by asking, why do you call him our Lord? And the answer, because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity in God's providence this evening to continue our consideration of who Jesus the Christ is. And we follow a simple structural format, that of the Apostles' Creed, and we will be reminded then that we began considering who Jesus Christ is by looking at the personal name that was given to Him, Uh, that God spoke in the fullness of time to Joseph uh, and to Mary that this child's name should be called Jesus, meaning the Lord saves, because He came for a specific purpose, that of the accomplishment of redemption or deliverance, salvation. We then continued, uh, and we looked at the title that was given to Him, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, The one who from all of eternity and also upon the beginning of his public ministry uh, was appointed by god the father and qualified by the holy spirit to accomplish all that is necessary for us and for our salvation we take another step forward following the structure of the apostles creed this evening And for the maturing of our faith, we look at this title that is also given to him, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the only begotten Son of God. And we do so underneath this theme, redemption by our Lord, and we've used this theme repeatedly to try to avoid Uh, a simply, so to speak, academic, intellectual consideration of what Lord means. We want to remember that we are dealing with the second section of the Heidelberg Catechism, the manner of our deliverance, the manner of our salvation, the manner of our redemption from our sin and from our misery. And I believe that that's the most helpful context for us to bear in mind and to remember. We do not simply come out of some passing curiosity, Uh, to listen to a man say some things abstractly uh, about the divine being, but rather we come to know more about our Redeemer, about our Deliverer, Jesus the Christ, our Lord. And we'll attempt, first of all, to consider the nature of our Lord, especially regarding His divine nature. And then secondly, the work of our Lord in in regards to our redemption And then thirdly, the relation to our Lord. So redemption by our Lord, the nature, the work, and the relation to our Lord. The only begotten Son. What exactly does that mean? We have to admit from the outset that we cannot fully comprehend the truth that is bound up in those words. Nor can we fully comprehend uh, the divine nature of Uh, Augustine said, and I paraphrase, it is God that you study, Uh, so do not be surprised if you do not fully comprehend that which you study. Because if we ever believe that we have fully comprehended God, then it is not God that we have comprehended. Now, this in no way should be taken to diminish the fact that we can have a true knowledge of God, we can have a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, but we can never attain an exhaustive knowledge. We will never know God as God knows Himself. And we will never know who Jesus the Christ is as Jesus the Christ knows Himself and as the Father and the Spirit. Nevertheless, God has chosen to reveal some truths about who Jesus the Christ is to us, for our knowledge. And one of the first things that God has revealed to us concerning the second person of the Trinity, our Redeemer, our Savior, is His eternal divinity. Jesus the Christ, the person who is our Lord or our Master, the one who has all power and all authority over us, is the eternal Son of God. And and this is a pressing question to each and every person especially each and every person who comes into contact with the preaching of the gospel. Who do you believe Jesus the Christ to be? And I just want to stress tonight, especially also for our young people who hear these words, our answer to that question must not be just a product of our own thought, but the answer to that question must be the answer that Scripture gives. So, what does the Word of God say concerning the eternal divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ? And we pick just three passages. Many more could be added, but we pick these three. First of all, we read in John 1, verse 1 In the beginning was the Word referring to the second person of the Trinity referring to the second person of the Trinity who in the fullness of time took on our human flesh through the incarnation. The Word became flesh, John would later write. But in John 1, verse 1, he emphasizes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We add to that simple statement Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7, referring to Christ Jesus being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And then we choose one passage from the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And so with this certain confidence of faith, the Christian church and the Christian today joins with the Christian church in confessing that we believe, along with Thomas, as he laid his eyes of faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, my Lord and my God. And we say the same concerning Jesus the Christ, my Lord and my God. And we put those two together. The reason that Jesus Christ is Lord is because He is God, because He has the fullness of the divine nature along of course with the Father and the Spirit. And He has that fullness of the divine nature by virtue of a unique sonship. And here I confess we especially plunge into the depths of the theological mystery of the triune Godhead. We speak here of an eternal generation, a deep doctrine which I believe can be summarized by borrowing the words Uh, of a former Reformed commentator. When you think about the unique Sonship, the eternal Sonship of Jesus Christ in relationship to the Father, the Lord Jesus is the true, real, natural, and essential Son of the living God, who is of one essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We would just add the statement that there was never a time in which the Father existed apart from the Son, Humanly speaking, of course, we understand fathers exist for quite a number of years before the sons exist, but that's not true when it comes to the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one only God, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal, but the Son is the Son by virtue of eternal generation. The Father generates to the Son an individual existence. An individual life, not a separate life, a life bound up with the Father and with the Spirit. But nevertheless, an individual life. And so we believe these truths based upon the testimony of Scripture. But this already begins to lay the foundation for why it is that the Christian, in reference to this person, Jesus the Christ, says, our Lord, because of His eternal divinity and because of His unique Sonship. But we continue because there is much more to be said. We move to our second point, the work of our Lord. Part of why we call Jesus our Lord is because of who He is, but part also is because of what He has done. Now, what He has done is intimately connected to who He is. And who he is enables him to conduct his work of redemption. But we call Jesus Christ our Lord because of his delivering work that was indeed a most costly work. And here this evening, we want to look a little bit more directly at the text that we read from 1 Peter. And we have in mind here verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but, and would be implied here, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. This redemption has this idea of obtaining someone's deliverance, someone's freedom. The idea of of liberation. Liberation that came, spiritually speaking, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And so the Christian... The Christian can't help but call Jesus the Christ our Lord because we begin to understand and we gradually grow in our understanding that the only reason we have spiritual life, the only reason that we have spiritual liberty from the uh, deathly tyranny of the devil is because of the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished. He has delivered us, and notice that uh, Peter identifies some of what we have been delivered from. In verse 14, Jesus Christ by his work applied by the Holy Spirit grants us deliverance from our ignorance and from our ignorance to the former lust, from the lust, the sinful desires that by nature enslaved our souls that were the cause of our misery and our alienation. And those sinful lusts, those sinful vices, those sinful desires that were at the very root core of our soul was so strangulating our very spiritual existence that we had no possible ability of delivering ourselves. But thanks be to God in His grace and in His mercy, He provided a deliverer, a redeemer, a rescuer if you were who is and was able to accomplish the deliverance which we so desperately needed but which we could not bring about ourselves. And not only our sinful ignorance, but also the sinful actions that flow out of that sinful ignorance. Verse 18 again, redeemed from aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers. Conduct here refers to simply a a way of life, And I don't say this in a hypercritical spirit, but just with a biblical pastoral observation. If you look at our culture, and if you look at all the lonely people, so to speak, what are they characterized in their life but an aimlessness? Do you ever watch people? And again, I stress, don't do it in a hypercritical, pharisaical spirit, but with a, a concern and with discernment. They wander. They wander through life. Drinking deeply from the wells of the cultural messages, the vast majority of human beings have no idea where they came from, have no idea why they are here, and have no idea where they are going. Aimless conduct. And such were we until we were delivered, until we were redeemed, until we were saved not by our own intellectual superiority, but by the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So why do we call Him Lord? Because of who He is and because of what He has done in delivering us uh, from this ignorance and from this sinfulness and from this aimlessness. And just notice this evening that this work was a most costly work. If you think of valuable metals... And it's certainly not my intention this evening nor at any other time to offer any one of you financial advice regarding your investment portfolio, but sometimes you'll see on certain news broadcasting networks uh, this encouragement to invest in precious metals. And we're told that the precious metals uh, have, you know, real stability, that the precious metals maybe of silver and of gold which the advertisers say, and again, don't mistake in me, I'm not giving financial advice. I would never do that from the pulpit, nor would I probably do that in any other context. But we're told by these advertisers that if you want real stability in your investment portfolio, you need to have these precious metals, silver and gold. And in fact, we measure our currency, And I know there's historical situations that come, but we measure our currency against the gold standard or the silver standard. And and so these precious metals, we believe, are, are that which are really valuable and stand the test of time. And yet with one swipe of his inspired pen, Peter says, it wasn't with this that you were redeemed. Gold and silver? No, it wasn't with that that you were redeemed. Because those, according to scriptural evaluation, are things that are corruptible. Gold and silver can be lost. And the value even of gold and silver could plummet. And ultimately, when you evaluate the things of time in relationship to the reality of eternity, gold and silver has no real lasting value. But what Peter does is he identifies uh, that which is commonly understood of having the most value in the temporal sense. And then he infinitely evaluates, or elevates rather, uh, the worth or the, the price of our redemption. And he says, it wasn't with gold and silver that you were redeemed, but with blood, with precious Blood. Now what is it, and we understand of course that all life has an inherent value as it bears the image of God. But what is it that gives this blood its infinite worth? And it's a, it's a good thing to do, but you can go donate blood. You can go give a, a pint of blood, a unit of blood. You don't get any money for it. And, and maybe you, you cut yourself and, and you bleed and, and the blood goes on the ground or in the sink or on, on some type of cloth, you don't think there's anything really valuable in that. You understand the importance of blood for your life, but if you, if you have a few drops of blood that are taken with a random blood test, you don't think, oh, pay me $100 for that, that little bottle of blood there. What is it that makes this blood so valuable in verse 19? The precious blood of Christ because of whose blood it is. Now, of course, we refer not to... His divine nature, but His human nature and the blood that His human nature shed it is those two natures are united together in the one person of the mediator. So what is it that makes that blood so precious? The fact that it is the blood of the mediator. The two natures united together in the hypostatic union of the one person, Jesus the Christ. And congregation, when we begin to see who it is that suffers the great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane and in the hall of Pilate and upon the cross of Calvary, then the only response fitting and appropriate is with humble repentance and faith to testify, Jesus Christ our Lord, our Master, because by that precious blood he has redeemed us from ignorance and from the bondage of sinful lust and of sinful desires. And notice also in verse 17 what he has redeemed us to. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Now this fear ought to be defined. This fear is not a trembling fright of what may happen in the future. Now, sometimes if we're honest, we're characterized by that type of a fear. Maybe even in regards to our investment portfolios, we think if we don't have enough precious metals, if we don't follow all of the advertiser's advice, if we're not diversified enough, that maybe our investment retirement accounts will run out before our days on earth run out. It's not that type of a fear, nor is it a fear of what one nation may do or what one regime may do. This fear is a godly fear, what our forefathers used to call and understand as a filial fear, the fear of a respectful son to a father. Knowing that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to motivate us out of a sense of gratitude to present the entirety of our body and our soul unto Jesus Christ, acknowledging him to be our Lord because of the relation that is in existence. And we consider that in our third point. So what we're trying to do by God's grace and by the Spirit's work is to inform us what it means to call Jesus Lord, but also then to motivate us, to motivate us to present the entirety of our persons into His service as we acknowledge that He is Lord. And so, we've considered the nature and then the work, and now we look at the relationship to our Lord. And the relationship is one of sonship, but yet of servanthood. And, and the question in Lord's Day 11 is said, rather 13, is, why do we call Jesus Christ our Lord, and why do we call Him the only begotten Son, since we also are sons and daughters? And there is a distinction, even as there is a commonality. And so Jesus, He said to His disciples that He would ascend to His Father, who is also our Father, And that's the point of commonality. But even in that commonality, there is an important distinction, and the important distinction is this, that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God by nature, sharing the same divine nature with the Father. We, as the children of God, are children of God by virtue of a gracious adoption. And what I want to emphasize this evening is that there is always a distinction between God and and humanity between the creator and the creation and this distinction needs to be recognized that we would then be motivated and reminded of the importance of acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the son in a different way than we are sons and daughters that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of god by nature, that we rather are sons and daughters by virtue of adoption. Uh, Galatians 4 verse 7 says as follows, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And that, that transformation takes place by the way of Christ redeeming work. You are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So the important thing is this. Christian, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you are not, you are not a stranger or an alien from God. You are an adopted son, and you are an adopted daughter. But also don't forget that you are not the Lord. I want to begin with encouraging you and myself to not forget that you are not the Lord. And perhaps this sounds too blunt or harsh. I don't mean this to be blunt or harsh. We hear much about being the captain of our own destiny in our Western culture. You and I are not the Lord of our lives, we belong. someone else our bodies belong to someone else we are not free to do whatever we want to do with our bodies and our souls belong to someone else we are not free to do with our souls whatever we want to do I am not the Lord of my life and you are not the Lord of your life Jesus Christ has obtained that right, you might say, by His costly work of redemption. And if we are prone to think that we are the captains of our own destiny or the lords of our own persons, then perhaps we need to go once again outside the city Jerusalem to the place of the skull, and through the revelation of Holy Scripture see the form of the one giving his body and his soul for our redemption. And who of us would stand at the foot of the cross and say, you're not the Lord, I'm the Lord. And so, yes, Thomas had his moment of doubt and of unbelief, but when he saw Christ, he said, my Lord and my God. And I would call upon the ears of everyone who hears these words to do likewise. To look to Jesus Christ and say, my Lord and my God. But to be balanced on the other side, don't forget who you are. Because I know that there is the alarming tendency to have a negative view of oneself. An adopted son, an adopted daughter of the Most High God, with all of the rights and with all of the privileges that belong thereto. You want a reason to be optimistic about life and about the future? It's found in your royal identity. By virtue of adoption, yes, but it's still your right, and it's still your privilege. You are a son, you are a daughter of the living God. And your elder brother is Jesus the Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father. With the rod of iron, so to speak, of Psalm 2, also making an intercession as Hebrews so wonderfully tells us. Now I know the earthly analogy falls short many, many a times because there's, you know, the, the ongoing, we'll just call it tension between younger sons and older sons, between brothers, you know, as they have to test constantly their strength and their ability and their agility and everything else, jostling with one another. But I can remember at times, you know, going into a, an uncertain context when I was a young boy, maybe going off to school and, and having a certain sense of nervousness, but if you have an older brother, ah, that kind of helps take away some of the nervousness if that older brother is mindful to help you through the process. I just want you to pause and think tonight. As a Christian, you have an older brother. An older brother who is characterized by infinite love for you, an older brother who has infinite power which he exercises continually on your behalf, an older brother who always has your best interest in mind, an older brother who delights to see you glorified. In eternity, an older brother who said, in essence, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And do you see how that balances together? You're not the Lord, I'm not the Lord, but our brother is the Lord. And this ought to combine to give us a certain humility but also confidence, not with arrogance but with confidence. We walk forward conducting our time here, yes, in fear, but also with a certain sense of optimistic confidence. And wouldn't it be wonderful if the world stopped us in our journey through life as they wander aimlessly and say to us, you know, I sense you have purpose in your life. I sense you have confidence in your life. I sense in your conversation and in your conduct that you are not as fearful as the rest of us are about the future. What is your key? What is your secret? And that would open up the window of opportunity for us to say, let me tell you about my elder brother, my Lord, and my God, amen. Our Heavenly Father, we confess tonight that we have attempted to look into deep, deep mysteries concerning who Jesus Christ is. We have spoken of His eternal generation, uh, of His divine nature. We have spoken also of His costly work of redemption by the shedding of His blood. Father, help us to understand and help us also to appreciate the work which He has accomplished, and how that impacts us and how it benefits us, and give us then the spiritual perspective of humility but of confidence, that we may know that we are sons and daughters belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.